The year is 2004. I'm Dave. And I'm Charles. And this is My Marvelous Year. of Marvel Comics from its origins to today. This is part of 2004 coverage. We're going to be talking all things X-Men today. I'm Dave Busing, founder and editor-in-chief of ComicBookHerald.com. I'm joined today by culture critic at The Verge, Charles Pulliam-Moore. Charles, thanks so much for joining. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. I wanted I wanted to have you on um, for a little bit now because you're, you're a great culture critic, have written about comics or writing about, you know, sort of the the, the scene here and the MCU and of course you know movies and TV and all that stuff um, but I think it'll be great to have you on for some additional perspective on the end of Grant Morrison's time on new X-Men yeah. we're going to talk about Here Comes Tomorrow and uh, and the work with Mark Silvestri and then also then the kickoff with everyone's favorite uh, uh, person right now Joss Whedon <laughs> huge right now so hot <laughs> and, uh, and John Cassidy uh, in Astonishing X-Men so we're going to talk about those two books today we're the first I'm going to try to structure this so the first half is going to be spoiler free conversation and then yeah. I think in the back half we'll probably maybe lean a little bit more into how it connects to things that are going on today but we'll try to give you all a warning when that comes because I know some folks like to avoid that uh, My Marvelous Year as always is brought to you via patreon.com Slash my marvelous year. We are reader and listener supported. Thanks to all you who are supporting us there. You can get cool benefits like access to the exclusive MMY Slack. And all of the issues that we read for the club are listed in the show notes. You can see what's coming next down there. Um, you can also uh, uh, go to mymarvelousyear.com, see what used to be up on the site. And then, uh, you know, the Patreon, you can get the full access to the full sheet for as little as $1 a month. So, with that out of the way, let's do it. Uh, all right, new X Men. This is the conclusion. Uh, so, so Charles, we're we're jumping in here right at the end of things. Yeah. Let's let's back it up though for for listeners' sake. What is your sort of familiarity and experience and enjoyment or or disillusion with the Morrison New X Men run? So it's so interesting. Like I, I <laughs> this particular run has come up in uh, so many instances where I've done like podcasts just because of the. Um, the far-flung dystopian future of it all, right? Mm -hmm. It is just sort of one of the more notable examples of uh, let's give everyone like a hard break from the reality that they've been spending time with for 100 or so issues and just be like, hey, let's see, um, let's take a brief pause and just see how wild things could potentially get and mm -hmm. juxtapose the two in such a way that reading in real time you're kind of like what am i going what is going on exactly where am right. i where am i um, where's my emotional investment supposed to be um and reading it in real time you're just kind of like eh, this is this is all very sort of confounding and comics at its wildness but then coming back to it and reading it now um it's so wild how much resonance there is with the end of morrison's run with where the x comics are right now um uh my personal experience i feel like everyone has a well, personally, I had that point in time where 
comics were sort of like just uh, I hadn't quite figured out how to become invested in comics yet as a kid and so I'm just kind of showing up at borders and paging through uh, trades just kind of randomly seeing like what appeals to me Um, and (laughs) I have very distinct memories of seeing a lot of these issues in borders just um, being drawn to the covers initially and then sort of being compelled to be like well what is going on with the cuckoos here I remember seeing them as young girls at the very beginning of this issue and now I'm seeing this trio of uh, white-robed oracles at the end of time, and I have no idea how we've gotten here because, as a kid, I was not—I <laughs> wasn't spending all the much all that much time reading uh, sequentially. It would just sort of be piecemeal. Right. Um, and so, for a long time, uh, this Morrison run in particular was just kind of how to put. Uh, it was just kind of like the atmosphere in my mind of like what the X Men could be at their wildness, at their wildest. It was just sort of like what happens when the X-Men is sort of just like left to their own devices to sort of percolate with one of the most ridiculous circumstances that you can think of for them, the whole Cassandra Nova situation. And then let's just extrapolate it as far into the future as we possibly can. And it's going to get all kinds of buck wild. And for me, just like having that be like being able to dip into that randomly um, over the course of a couple of years was just kind of, it opened my mind gradually to like what X-Men comics could be because uh, there are so many periods where the X-Men are just um, a rather traditional superhero team or rather right. pretending to be something like that when they're like splitting their time between being teachers and superheroes. Whereas this just sort of really pushed me to start thinking about the X-Men as being like larger than life, sort of non, like non, I don't want to say non-human, but sort of they are a ridiculous kind of group of people and this is sort of what we can expect from them when a, the creative team is sort of given the leeway to really have fun yeah yeah no it's it, you point out a lot of interesting things there but it is it's one of those arcs where it's like the x-men are a story of evolution mm-hmm. and and genetic diversity as opposed to what we always think of them and what the next arc we're going to talk about repositions or recenters them as which is a superhero team, right? Like that's mm-hmm. when we get to Astonishing X-Men, we're going to see like, oh, okay, here's the back to basics superhero back, yeah. version of this thing. Um, I, I think this is definitely, Here Comes Tomorrow is definitely Morrison's most challenging story arc, which is kind of wild because, you know, we've been going through the arc and we've read most of it for the club here and have recommended folks who are digging it read all of it. Um, but it's not, it's not an easy <laughs> run compared to what is around it in and of itself, right? Mm-hmm. But everything that comes before Here Comes Tomorrow feels extremely traditional <laughs> and yeah, calm yeah, yeah, by yeah, comparison, yeah, yeah. right? Um, I, I think there are some keys to making it easier, some some details and things that are that only make sense to me now having read it multiple times and sort mm. of having having seen dots connected or connected them myself um but definitely at the time i mean at the time you know because you read the planet x story that precedes this and that is very much a conclusion i mean it is very purposefully uh feels like okay this is this is pretty conclusive we have the death of gene gray mm. we have the, um the death of magneto and just mm-hmm. his total erosion and and just like morrison just like absolutely tanks whatever could be done with that character um because he he destroys all of manhattan like there is a massive massive mutant terrorist act that we typically i feel like memory wise sort of reserve 
for what stuff that happens in the ultimate universe mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. but it's like no that happened in 616 like Magneto and it's like the kind of like it's like a large it's like the kind of large-scale terrorist event like happening in manhattan feels like such a uh, it feels like such a like an easy choice but also a significant one it's like mm-hmm. oh no 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 the x-men's most iconic foe truly i want to say like mutilated manhattan like to look at the mm-hmm. art and sort of see the like the it's almost like barbed wire structuring even though it's just like massive amounts of metal that he's warped it's like he's mm-hmm. turned the city into this you know hideous gleaming testament to his own monstrosity and everyone can see it and it's all happening you know while he's under the influence of kick and morrison's writing as it's so interesting to like read the end of that arc because everyone's acting crazy Right, like, because they're, you know, it starts off at the very beginning where Emma's like, when she's describing what it's like when she takes kick, and she's like, I felt angelic and you know, murderously insane or something like that. And by the end, we're seeing um, Magneto, you know, the mutant formerly known as Zorn, and his new ragtag group of Brotherhood mutants being kind of like a mess. You know, they mm-hmm. are on top, they're in a position of power, but they're all addicts, they're junkies falling apart and sort of tearing at each other. And while Magneto is doing all, you know, he's sort of achieving what he wants. You can clearly see that he's not, it's not that it's not just that he's not with it. He's a mess. And when yeah. he eventually has that confrontation with Jean, it's so, it's so funny in the moment where she's, you know, she puts his own helmet. I'm not, I forget if she puts the helmet back on him, but she's like, do you see Magneto here? Like, this is anyone. Do you see Eric Lyncher? And it's meant to humiliate him, but it is sort of conveying to you like, oh, like he's, he's lost the thread here, right? There yeah. is no sort of, there is no plan here. Um, something that Esme tries to point out to him before, you know. Um, but then you come to this and it's kind of like, <laughs> it's like how much darker could it have possibly gotten? Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's like much, much. Yeah. yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the jump, so we jump 150 years into the future and it is because it's like, okay, what is the follow-up to 150? Like, what are your options, you know? And, and it's kind of like, okay, well, we have what's going to become of the X-Men, what's going to become of Scott and Emma, and they're sort of developing what was an affair, but now Gene's dead. So it's like, mm-hmm. what's going to become of that? Um, and, and then also just like, what is coming from the rubble of Manhattan? Like, what is the what is the world's response to, you know, like you were just saying, this drug-addled, just out-of-control Magneto, like unleashing, I mean, the most, probably the most, like, notable devastation he's unleashed and like mm-hmm. like like dude has some devastation in his in his his back story you know um but instead morrison and and mark silvestri are like no we're going 150 years in the future and we're going to do our days of future past wrist mm-hmm. past uh riff and this is very much i mean listen like morrison's on the way out they're not happy with editorial and and all the restrictions at this point um but at the same time you know this is a run the morrison manifesto is very much like Listen, I I feel most indebted to the Claremont and Burns stuff. That is mm. what I want to be referencing. How can you say that and not do a Days of Future Past thing? Yeah. Um, and that's what this is, right? And it and it has, I think, a similar sort of just like delightful whiplash um, mm. that that Days of Future Past has, where it's like, wait, what? What's happening? Who's dead? Where are we? You know? <laughs> um, and that's that's what Here Comes Tomorrow jumps in. It just throws you in. And of course, Morrison being Morrison. It is also densely layered with primarily new characters, mm-hmm. you know, and, and talking about them as if we, like, if you have a moment where you're like, should I remember who Tom Skylark is? Like, you're not alone. <laughs> you know? I tr- thinking to myself, like, I, I, is his flirting with, like, is, is he keeps talking about how he's good with machines. And I'm like, you're saying this with such frequency, like, it's a catchphrase I'm supposed to know. And it's like, yeah, no. yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
No, absolutely. So we have this Tom Skyler character who's great with machines, and he's got a, a <laughs> sentinel named Rover. That is that is his. Um, I don't want to say unrequited love, but definitely, definitely his aid in things. But they're all they're all surviving basically what has become. You know, it's an age of apocalypse riff too, where it's like this is an apocalypse. Um, it is ruled by the beast, right? We keep getting references to the beast, and I think one of the keys to understanding this for me, because so one of the biggest areas of Whiplash is definitely like as this story progresses, the beast, like as you might expect, is beast. Um, but, but is Shocker. he right? And that, yeah, yeah, exactly. And it like, he's, he's got like white fur now and he, Mark Sylvester draws him really cool. He has like some blend of like, kind of like a cat tiger, you know, and he's got this giant cloak and all that stuff. It's, it's, it's very a great cool, look. Of all the, like, of all the like dark beast variants that we see, like the beast yeah. is by far the coolest, especially yeah. when he has his full, um, when he has his full, like, uh, it's almost apocalypse looking like mm-hmm. armor, his like battle dress thing. It's very, it's very fly. I, I yeah, I love it. Um, and, and he, it's like, okay, is this a dark beast? Hank has, has gone mad and is now the supervillain of the world. And I think one of the keys to understanding this is this is a possessed Hank. And we can yeah. get into the, the details. Um, but this is not – and we'll talk about this in the back half. But, like, listen, dark beast things happen. <laughs> and they're happening. <laughs> and uh, this is not necessarily that. And at Morrison, because they move fast and because they don't hold your hand – I was very confused by that initially because Beast is so lovable in this run. Like of all the characters that Morrison kind of gravitates to, I think Beast's charm and and challenges uh, evolving, you know, going mm-hmm. through a secondary mutation mm-hmm. are are for me often the center and kind of the heart of New X Men. Yeah. Um, so to see the character twisted like this, it's I think again one of the keys is like, well, they are possessed, and that's you know you mentioned Magneto over or you know becoming an addict to kick kick is like shockingly essential <laughs> to the it's shockingly essential run. but you saying all of this just like the, the the dark beast turn you know beast turn into the beast it is really whiplashy after seeing hank you know um, yeah. in the current timeline but you mentioning earlier that so much of morrison's run is about evolution that is what the beast is right like we this yeah. like when we do jump when we do do this 150 years when we do jump 150 years in the future what we're seeing is like what has evolved right and it's sort of like it is an accelerated evolution that has sort of brought us to something that looks unrecognizable and i think Mm -hmm. the real beauty of here comes tomorrow is that the more times you read it (laughs) it sounds like pr but the more times you read it and the more time and the more time you spend with it the more it does make sense as like a logical progression of so many of the things that are laid down throughout the arc right like yeah you see this team of x-men and they do look very strange it's like oh martha johansson's still here i don't know how that worked like i didn't know that human brains or mutant brains could last that long yeah, but yeah. then it's like oh wait that you know that old woman in a safari outfit that's it, it is cassandra it mm-hmm. is ernst and it's like oh right 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 we you have been you know when we are first introduced to um magneto's class the the special class you know um it is both a brilliant way to sort of set the stage for the Zorn turn and how like I have found the weakest amongst you and I'm going to turn them into my generals once we you know decide to go forward with this crazy plan but it's also like you know as wild as that all seemed in the moment these are the sort of like trials that teams of X-Men go through in their youth before they go on to become the X-Men in in these far-flung futures and so while we're not necessarily seeing the original Beak I think it's his grandson 
you know, the, the yeah. big, yeah, muscular, <laughs> you know, the yeah. big muscular bird man. Um, it's like, oh, right, right. You know, um, whatever it is in the bow husk DNA, whatever, you know, predilection the bow husks have for heroism has come to the fore in, you know, yeah. this descendant of his. And that creates this really sort of lovely, like, narrative symmetry, because it's like, when you're reading, when you're first, when you're first introduced to like Beacon Angel, Morrison's getting into this idea like not all mutants are like beautiful and pretty, right? And you right. think to yourself, perhaps that's the only function they're going to serve, uh, particularly with the way that like Angel is really like denigrated and given like a really kind of awful backstory and just I feel like not handled well as a character. It would have been so sure. easy for her to end up just kind of being a throwaway character meant to convey to readers how bad things are for mutants but with here comes tomorrow she does have this longer legacy through her you know through her descendant which is really cool to see and the same goes for um same goes for cassandra Uh, the same goes for uh who else is on the team it's getting away from me well you mentioned uh you mentioned uh no girl right the the brain no girl um Um, and eva Eva and and kind of Phantom X. I think kind technically of, we have like Phantom a possessed X. Phantom X. Um, I know that it's 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 since been you know we we know it's not, but I, in my heart of hearts, like oh yeah, it's, that I mean that's how it re- that's how it felt definitely yeah. reading it to me. Um, no, but it, I think that's you bring up a great point, which is like Morrison throughout New X Men is very committed to the new characters they create, which mm-hmm. is exciting, right? Because it is like oh these are you know it's you could have just had Beacon Angel be a one-off but it's like no mm-hmm. like they're consistent players and to the point that yeah their grandson shows up 100 years in the future and it kind of has meaning because you you've put in the work um but they're also committed to this attempt to break out of x-men cycles mm-hmm. right yeah and, and, and break out of sort of we're trapped in these loops um how do we get ourselves out of that and new characters is one way to do it right yeah another way to do it is jumping into the distant future and having Jean Grey and Phoenix stories kind of be the fulcrum of like these are these tricks we keep repeating. These are you know mm-hmm. the Jean and Scott relationship right in the the you know um, uh, thruple with Wolverine. It's like we keep <laughs> spinning those wheels. How do we break free from that stuff? And and I think here comes tomorrow is kind of the fine and and you know Planet X definitely is like okay I'm gonna I'm gonna break you free from the Magneto trap right. Yeah. I'm gonna make it so hard to untangle this you know and obviously. Marvel then struggles with that going forward. Um, but Here Comes Tomorrow is the same thing. But it's it's fascinating to me that the focus of, like... Because Days of Future Past, fixing the timeline is, like, saving the world, right? Right. It's like, preventing this dystopian future. It's like, how do we get back to normal? Yeah. Whereas, that's actually not discussed a lot in Here Comes Tomorrow. I mean, mm-hmm. it's kind of an undercurrent because clearly things are pretty dystopian. Um, but it's also, like, the main thing Gene is trying to fix is... Scott and Emma connecting mm-hmm. <laughs> and getting together yeah. and uh, and going on to found the school. And basically, it's just like giving Scott hope to like keep trying after all this devastation. It's actually kind of a – for someone who's writing this and, and has said in interviews, like, you know, was writing this under tremendous levels of despair. You know, we're still very close to post-9-11 stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, Morrison was in a dark place, I think, just in terms of people they had lost in their life. Um it's actually a pretty beautiful sentiment that the the final thing that needs to be salvaged, I think, is Gene being like, it's okay, move on, mm-hmm. right? And obviously superhero comics historically have an incredibly hard time with that. <laughs> it's, <laughs> you know? Looking at this run, it's so, I, I'm a... I'm an avowed Gene Stan, um, as many gay men are. It's it's just it's hard coded <laughs> into our DNA. Yeah. Um, 
But re- going back in, I reread a lot of a lot of uh, this run just for fun because it is yeah, really yeah. good. Um, it is so satisfying and fascinating and also difficult to see Gene and Scott struggle with each other, right? Mm. Because it's the thing that they are struggling with. So common, it's like with Gene, it's always like, oh, the Phoenix is coming and overtaking me, and I'm so afraid of what this thing is going to be. And Scott's always there, you know. Where is my wife? I'm, 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 I'm looking for this woman who looks exactly like my wife. I've, I've, you know, he's dealing with all these kinds of problems. And what's happening here, what you see over time is Scott is drifting away from Emma because he has all of this residual uh, fear and guilt and just turmoil about what Apocalypse, about his time with Apocalypse. And he's like, yo, like Apocalypse showed me some shit, right? Yeah. And I'm, I'm, yeah. I, I, as the stalwart straight man of the team, do not know what to do with myself now that I have been so thoroughly laid bare by someone who like read me to filth, mm. right? And Jean is like, and Jean on the other hand, she's like, hey, um, this cosmic thing that's always inside of me that usually like I really can't get a grip on, I'm feeling really good about it. And that's the <laughs> yeah. fun thing that's, that's as a Jean fan, that's what's so great about this is that after being so accustomed to seeing Jean manifesting a firebird and it's like, oh God, here she goes. It's, it's gonna, it's all gonna go to shit. It's more sort of, She's coming into a kind of fullness. There are a couple of issues. I, I if it haven't, I don't have them written down exactly. Where she's talking about feeling her senses expanding and just yeah. coming into them that way. And we, as you know, like comics nerds who are interested in the big phoenix of it all, know that that's part of what she's talking about. But another part of it is her being very kind of um, cognizant of the distance that's happening between her and Scott. And it's not just because of, you know, the psychic rapport she has. She's like, I know you. I know you and I know Emma and I see this and Mm -hmm. I can sense that this is not like we are not working. But I think the subtext is the Phoenix in me is like, oh, burn it, burn it away. Because this like I'm (laughs) I, Jean Grey, transcend all of you. And so while your emotional attachment to me may be painful in the moment, I'll go on. I'll survive. You deserve to survive as well. And the tension between the two of them, I feel like, is Gene, it's both of them working towards or trying to work towards that conversation and then never being able to have it at the end, right? Yeah, because, right. shocker, she dies. Um, dies. Because um, yeah, yeah. I think G- this is Gene one dies. of the. I think, well, I, but I, I, I say, I put it on quotations mainly because usually when we, you know, quotation mark her deaths, it's, you know, it's like, oh, girl, you'll be back. But here it's because I think this is one of the few times where she's died and it's been genuinely interesting like what happens when Jean Grey dies right like what's yeah what is the significance of her repeated deaths beyond it's you know built into the code name um and it's just you want to talk about cycles right and Morrison breaking cycles I mean the rebirth of the phoenix right is is an ultimate one um and Morrison plays with that in this story by there's a phoenix egg okay this Mm -hmm. is the big deus ex machina but it also is heavily connected because we just saw Jean die in planet x um so Tom Skylark's trying to transport the phoenix egg. It's kind of the secret weapon, right, of the, the mutant resistance against the beast. The beast wants the phoenix egg so he can manipulate the power of the phoenix for himself. And, I mean, un, unsurprisingly, you know, as the phoenix egg is, is used and then woken, which is a nice nod to kind of how Gene's first death and resurrection is done mm-hmm. in, you mm-hmm. know, 1986 or, or whatever the actual year is. Um, but in in that John Byrne story, right, against Claremont's Wishes, where it's like, oh, yeah, there, no, there's a, a secret egg. No, so there was like, a secret egg at the bottom of Jamaica Bay. What are you talking about? Yeah, yeah, it was there the whole time. <laughs> um, so Morrison's like, okay, fine, we have phoenix eggs then. And uh, <laughs> and so we have a phoenix egg. It hatches. Jean is awakened. At first, she kind of, she doesn't remember much, right? So she's going along with the beast plan. She thinks it's Hank. You know, she thinks there's some connection there. And eventually she runs into Logan, Wolverine, who has survived this time. You know, it's another one of our, you know, kind of 
things we can grasp onto, characters we recognize. And after having a chat, it's kind of like, oh, okay, here's here's the deal. And of course, then Phoenix is the one who generally undoes what uh, what the Beast has established here in this plot that we can get into <laughs> if we have to. Um, but the the main thing though is like as she's kind of fully ascending into the white the white phoenix of the crown and in the in the white hot room and all this stuff um the thing she looks at as she's amputating the timeline is mm-hmm. what do i have to change and what she has to change is again what i said i mentioned a moment ago but it's you know it's Scott walking away from Emma right and it's it is a sacrifice cuz it is easy to forget like Jean's reaction to finding Scott and Emma together <laughs> is not the casual um very zen you know, Phoenix response. It is. It is the fiery, explosive. I'm gonna kill you. Is it easy to, for, is it easy to forget, or is it one Not, of the things that we all have blazoned to our memories? Good point. Good no, point. it's it's it, and, and that and even that right. Like that is such a to juxtapose those two reactions from Jean. You know, Jean storming into uh, Emma's head or Scott's head and seeing Emma being like, "I'm going to kill you both," versus mm-hmm. her being like, "Oh, honey." This isn't working for either of us. And also, I have a job to do. Is such a, that is such, it is a kind of growth that is hard to telegraph with a character like Jean Grey, after, like especially after you see her go through the Dark Phoenix saga, right? Um, you know, it's that classic problem with uh, women whose power gets tied up in insanity. It suddenly becomes, well, what do we do with her afterwards, right? Because mm-hmm. are we just going to keep going through the cycle? How do we show change and progression? And with Jean, it's like, I can, I can, I can, I don't want to say I can control my emotions, but it's like my reactions to things are just more nuanced because she is embracing the, the actual uh, grandeur of her cosmic self, right? Yeah. It's sort of, yeah. there is a pettiness to the Dark Phoenix to a certain extent. It's always like, I'm going to burn everything and I'm going to eat everyone. And it's like, Phoenix, that's very destructive in the moment. What about, you know, what about your long-term reputation? What about, you know... What about the, the the duty that you have as a steward of life, right? Mm. Which is a sort of nebulous concept that's always kind of implied with the Phoenix's I am fire and life incarnate. And it's like, girl, what does that mean exactly? Right? That's a really interesting that, point. Yeah. Because, well, we see that all the time with other cosmic pantheon. Right? Galactus, for example, right? Galactus mm-hmm. often has, or, or as he progresses, has these, you know, well, there's a role for me in the universe. Mm-hmm. And, right, a very a very understanding relationship as opposed to just... I'm mad and I want to eat you. <laughs> and it takes Gene a while to get there. It takes Gene a really long time to get there, but it also takes X-Men editorial a very long time to figure out how to articulate that, right? Yeah. Because so long it is just contextualizing fear and destruction with the promise of life and creation that is just meant to be um, this sort of uh, the greatness before the fall with Gene, you know, when she's mm-hmm. wearing the green costume before it turns black. What, and what's so interesting about Here Comes Tomorrow is that I feel like Morrison is trying to, like, codify some of what the Phoenix is, right? Yeah. It's like, oh, no, no, like, there's a Phoenix core out there, right? Like, we haven't we haven't gotten there yet. They exist somewhere outside of space and time, and there's a whole bunch of hosts, and they have all of this very important work to do. And Jean is one of many, perhaps the most important of them all. Yeah. But she is not cognizant of that yet, you know, despite her, you know, her consciousness existing in all of these places and times, she still has to learn that, right? And seeing her having to learn that. Um, and it's so interesting to see the different ways that that's conveyed throughout uh, Throughout uh, Here Comes Tomorrow. There's the odd dialogue box, like just the way that the dialogue is written when she's speaking to other Phoenix avatars and she's sort of in this void and she's clearly disoriented. She's like, I'm, this is fun, but like, 
what? <laughs> and we're, you know, and we as people who are somewhat familiar with what all the Phoenix can do can sort of piece together like, oh, right, like you are using all of your power to heal a timeline by burning part of it away. And that's a very scary thing. But here, you know, within, you know, within a setting with other Phoenixes, you're doing, you're doing a version of Phoenix work that we've never seen before. This yeah. sort of this sort of cosmic maintenance that sort of speaks to, oh, right, of course this is what you do. And of course, like, when you're zoomed in on one specific instance, it could look like um, mindless destruction that has to be stopped by a group of ragtag heroes. But when you take the zoomed out cosmic perspective, it's actually something really sort of meticulous and beautiful and systematic. Mm. Um, yeah. I, I think all the Phoenix stuff is definitely... I mean, it's it's one of the things I I gravitate to most on rereads, um, especially the ending because it is it feels like there's so much meat on the bones still, you know, because mm-hmm. Morrison oh, yeah. leaves and they don't do anything else with it, and it feels like one of those things where you know, twenty years later, um, it's like has, has people done things with the Phoenix Corps? <laughs> like like you know, a few people have referenced like Al Ewing, of course, is very good at at these continuity connecting dots and like okay i've seen a little you know white hot room stuff you mm-hmm. know for, from al and maybe there are plans there um but it's like we got a whole phoenix core like there's we got, a whole we phoenix got, core you know quentin is everyone, there and it's like, everyone let every i feel like it's it's always the references to the phoenix core as we're calling them it's always like well you know quentin's gonna be a host someday which yeah, is yeah. yes we know but it's always like look I, I always feel like when that comes up in stories, it's such a slap in the face because Quentin's always being an asshole in the moment. It's so yeah. it's 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 always like Quentin is so far and away from Quentin is so far and away from that point in time, uh, partially because Gene and Rachel are usually running around at the same time, mm-hmm. and so mentions of uh, Quentin as the Phoenix always feel like all right, yeah, 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 we know. I always read it too as as an alternate reality Phoenix or mm. uh, Quentin, right? Because that's a lot of the writers have taken it as. That is Quentin's destiny in six one six, right? And, and I always read it as like, well, this feels like a, a multiversity thing that Morrison's yeah. doing. Yeah, it's so like, uh, you know, we're recording this around when Into the Spider Verse comes out, and it's like, oh yeah, this is just you know the Spider Society, but for Phoenixes. Yeah, 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 yeah. right, yeah, <laughs> totally. Um, which, which is I a which like, is a brilliantly fun concept. I mean, there's it's no a brilliantly fun exist. concept, but I can also understand why Marvel has shied away from it, right? Because sure. then it becomes if you have a fleet of phoenixes running around, like every time the phoenix gets a new host, it's a whole, it's a whole. You know, when Echo became the phoenix, it was like, well, what's that about? Like, why? Yeah. What, yeah, what yeah. is a street level hero going to be doing with it? Um, and it, it just raises all kinds of questions because there are larger implications to when the phoenix is just present, and so having mm-hmm. multiples of them is complicated um and it also it just brings up well why 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 aren't the phoenixes stepping in right when all of these Mm. things happen and the answer is like yeah it's like well the answer is obviously it's supposed to happen but that feels like a cop-out right um yeah i'm very you know we are we are living in an interesting age for x comics um and one of the best things about it is that the interestingness has not come from a a mad dash run to start answering things like this but rather sort of you know the gradual i feel like the, the past uh, this is, I don't want to talk about other comics besides the ones that we're supposed to be focusing on here, but it has been interesting seeing, you know, Gene in the Hickman era becoming a more deep and complex character in a way that does kind of feel like an evolution towards a, towards the kind of Phoenix consciousness that we see here. Like there's, mm. it's so interesting that like that that phrase actually uh, Hickman uses that phrase like when um when Logan and Gene are 
tricked onto Asteroid M, which is, mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel like one of the one of the testaments to this run is that beats like that, like on paper, sound so silly. Like y'all got tricked back up to Asteroid M. You didn't, <laughs> you didn't clock that you were on Asteroid M somehow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but when you're reading, you're like, oh no, he got them back on Asteroid M. How terrible. Yeah. Um, you know, when when the, when a comic manages to make you feel that way, it's like, ah, yeah, we're cooking with heat here. But when they're, you know, <clears throat> boiling to death. Um, on the rock and Logan kills her. The first thing that she says is like, you activate the Phoenix consciousness. And it feels like such a, there's so many times where like Phoenix dialogue can feel kind of like a, I'm slipping into Phoenix grandeur mode and I'm saying things that don't exactly mean all that much. Mm. But there is a way that the Phoenix consciousness mentioned does feel specifically like Jean being, um, cause she's, what did she say? She says something like, I don't know how long they'll let me stay here. Right. And it feels like mm. she's making a direct connection to, herself in the future or something in the future something that feels very sort of like like capital j capital g gene gray capital p phoenix right that's just what she's coming into right in that moment and it's why she's able to you know come back with the ship save everything and then be killed by a stroke somehow which also feels like a choice it's like uh she does all of this stuff and then magneto gets her with like a little trick is that is that is it actually a trick or is it, you know, the Phoenix consciousness being like, okay, now, now that we've done all this, come, 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 because we have work to be doing here in the future. Right, right. No, maybe there's a larger plan. It is, it, it, the end of this, everything you're you're articulating there, and then also Here Comes Tomorrow, does make me kind of like, I don't, it's not that I wish the run was different, but it is that thing of like, Morrison is really well suited to be dealing with the Phoenix. Like, it is that mm. perfect level of magic and cosmic and like even just the idea of a phoenix consciousness like these are these are such invisibles ideas you know for morrison (laughs) and there's a weirdness like you said to her dialect it's all zeros and mashed in between you know it's like matrix mixed with text and it's like why is this happening like there's there's a real strangeness that morrison lets looser you know when he's Mm -hmm. especially when he's getting the phoenix stuff and it does make me kind of I don't know. It's it's. It, I could go both ways. I'm like, this was the perfect amount, and it's tantalizing, and it leaves you wanting more, and maybe that's exactly what you want. Um, and then there's the part of me that's like, oh, I could have used like, you know, some real weird Phoenix Core, <laughs> proto multiversity stuff with this. As I maybe someone who, too much. as someone who has only like recently come into his fondness for Rachel Summers, um, just because I, as a Gene fan, as a child, was like, well, who is this person? Why does she yeah. have the Phoenix? I'm like, what's that? No, 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 no. I yeah. feel like I, I think that Morrison understands that the less is more, right? Over, and that, yeah. it's like that, that feels like an oversimplification because it's not like there is less here. Subtlety is more with the Phoenix, right? There is, there's a certain degree to which with a character like that, you have to speak softly in order to imply the caring of a big stick. And mm-hmm. Morrison does that very well all throughout this issue, right? Um, there's so, I mean, there, there are just so many, there are, so, there, there are just so many instances that the references to Gene's connection to the Phoenix feel, how to put, it's not, that, it's not just that they feel intentional, but it's like they are perfectly calculated to point to the gravity of what's coming with her. It's not mm-hmm. just that we are telegraphing, right, that the Phoenix is coming. It is sort of like this gradual buildup to the fact that we are seeing, you know, the White Phoenix, uh, what is it, the Phoenix of the White Crown coming into, mm-hmm. like, really sort of, like, being the main character, or rather the, the, the character around which this entire reality revolves with right. Here Comes Tomorrow. Right. No, totally. Um, okay. Yeah, no, it's, it's all super interesting. I think the other piece of this that definitely we probably have to articulate is 
sublime, right? So <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I I, I, I wrote a note down earlier because you said something that really like clicked in place with me. Like, yeah, Gene is to Phoenix what Beast is to Sublime in this. Mm, sure, you know, like they, yeah. and that's really sort of, but but like just like not just in being a host, but the entire way that Sublime is framed throughout this, right? Like, I, like Sublime being framed as almost like an original evil, a primordial, yeah. Yeah. you know, bacterial evil that is, or... There's so much more dark side in Sublime than, than I ever remember <laughs> there being. It's like, what? But to see, like, <clears throat> to see and to hear, uh, you know, Sublime Particulate uh, talking about its origins as one of the oldest living creatures in existence, it's it's telling the Phoenix story. It's like, I've mm. been here from the very beginning, and I've mm. seen, I've watched evolution from afar, and, you know, I was displeased with it, and then I saw this thing that really galvanized me into action. And unlike the Phoenix, which sort of zeroes in on a host very easily and sort of, well, we, we don't know how, how, how easy the, the Phoenix decision process is. We're never made privy to that. But we do see that Sublime bides its time Right, it's really just sort of waiting, not just waiting. Um, it is sort of it's it's biding its time and sort of watching the players on the stage do what they will and deciding which one of them will serve as like the best vehicle for it to achieve its own ends. And then we don't really see, we don't really see the full. I don't. Know, well, I think that by the end, by the end of Planet X, we are seeing sort of like the culmination of Sublime. Like we're seeing we're seeing Sublime sort of like pushed to a sort of culmination point. It's not necessarily the point that Sublime would have wanted for itself, right? Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't necessarily want to become the dominant species by way of, like, a bunch of junkies killing each other. Um, you know what I mean? Because it's not, that yeah. is not, that is not necessarily the most conducive to its own uh, peaceful existence, right? Um, but then with Here Comes Tomorrow, it's like, well, let's extrapolate it even further, right? Like, what does this thing as, um, this thing as sort of like an embodiment of evolution's ability to keep things hardy what does it look like when it toughs it out through this terrible end of time you know with planet x and then it eventually has the opportunity to become its perfect form or something like it yeah you know yeah so sublime so okay for those of you who are like wait sublime like the human guy like what <laughs> <laughs> it is it is definitely taking me several because that was that was the thing for me definitely the first time through and even now where it's like wait the archvillain of this whole you know, alternate dystopia is is the human guy? Like what? Is this like, guy? This guy with a wig? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but what we learn here in this arc is Sublime is, like you said, basically an oldest time sentient bacteria, <laughs> <laughs> which is a very Morrison idea, um, that has uh, basically seen it all, but also is like very much is opposed to evolution as a concept, right? So mm -hmm. we, we take the idea of the simplicity of humans versus mutants, right? And and being afraid of change and the, the evolution of humanity. And you take that all the way back to millions of years in the past and you have this bacteria that is like, I've always been opposed to evolution of any kind, <laughs> right? I saw Just it as I a concept. For it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So like he's trying to, or the, this thing is trying to erase all genetic diversity um so sublime is again the sentient bacteria that is kind of biding their time and what they do is they're kind of hiding away in various hosts so we get the human thing they're, they start hiding away in kick in the drug so there's a reading of this that i think a lot of fans prefer because of of sort of the 
desecration of Magneto as a, as a yeah. person, which is <laughs> Magneto was also possessed because he mm-hmm. was high on kick, which Sublime was hiding in. Um, and then you get a very quick, again, Morrison is moving as fast as they ever move. Um, you get a very quick synopsis of like things were going badly. Scott and MLS, Beast or Scott and Emma left, Beast was trying to hold it all together, and in that weakness, in that moment, you know, Sublime took hold, essentially, mm-hmm. right? And then Road Beast and his ability, his scientific ability, essentially, his brain, his genetic coding, right, and his ability to create chimeras of, of all sorts of mutants together in this army of nightcrawlers with different mutant abilities, Sublime rode that to this point where they can, the master plan essentially seems to be, I'm going to finally get this Phoenix power, and I'm going to burn everything else away, and right. it will be just me again, and the way I wanted it, right? Like, that's that's basically what Sublime is. Um, as arch-villains go, it's actually very, very smart, uh, but I found it confusing as hell for a few times, that's for sure. It's very confusing, especially, it's very confusing, but it also, like, I, I, I keep coming back to this, like, this duality between Sublime and the Phoenix, because throughout Grant's, or rather, throughout Morrison's run, Jean does sense. She's like, there's something stalking us. Like we're all getting sick, and I don't know what it is. And again, she's she's her phoenixness is picking up on something. Also, you know, her gene perception is picking up on things, but she can't fathom how deep it goes and sort of rather the significance of it. But I think that the fact that she can constantly feel it is meant to telegraph to us that it is sort of that scale of problem, right? Mm-hmm. It's like she does not recognize that she is the one who needs to deal with this in the moment. We don't recognize it either, but we are being told like this is the big fight towards the end. These sort of yeah. like larger than life entities do have to make their clash. Mm-hmm. Um, you, men- you know, mentioning um, chimeras, reading chimeras in the moment, you know, it's a bunch of little baby night crawlers who speak yeah. broken German and English, and you're like, what is this? And they've got lasers coming out of their eyes. You're like, okay, all right. Um, reading it now, it's like, oh, they're doing chimeras. Oh, he's, look, they're, they're, we've got chimeras. We've got yeah. chimeras in this future, and they're not Sinister's creations. They are beasts. And it makes so much, it makes it makes all the sense in the world for them to be coming from Hank, um, particularly after seeing seeing him become you know seeing him go through his secondary mutation and then really seeing him i feel like try to compartmentalize his trauma over it by focusing on other people who've developing who've developed developed them right Mm. um as much of a you know my gene fan makes me uh, by default have to have very complicated feelings about emma but i what i love about emma in this arc is that you are seeing this to me is the the arc that really does sort of sell emma as um, someone who has an emotional investment in the X-Men beyond like desire, mm. a desire for revenge. Um, everything yeah. from seeing Negasonic and the other teenagers murdered to going through her. Oops. Please don't remember. But... Everything about this arc really just sort of breaks Emma down and builds her back up in a way that makes her transition into heroism feel something really organic and yeah. believable in a way that really... Um, resonated with me i completely forgot the point i was just trying to make (laughs) (laughs) that awful siren i mean i i do the whole emma and scott thing i kind of take for granted because i i came into comics you know kind of late after it had been established essentially right so i i came in at a point where emma and scott being headmasters together and kind of running a school it was established so it Mm -hmm. didn't feel as explosive necessarily Mm -hmm. um i do also think morrison quietly teams right they do a good job building clear like clearly scott is more into emma 
than Gene, right? There's there's that real coldness that you that you talked about earlier in terms of Gene and Scott's romance. Like we see this mm-hmm. falling apart. It's not a, mm-hmm. it's not a surprise. At the same time, you know, it's funny, like, you know, you go back and read some of the letters pages after some of these issues. And, you know, at the end of, like, 151, I want to say, you know, one of the first comments is essentially, like, you know, Emma and Scott better not get together. Like, you know, Gene and Scott for life, right? And, like, that's still a fandom, you know, a, a point of contention, I think, in some ways. Um, so I, I do think Morrison probably felt that and was like, mm-hmm. no, I, I need to hit this harder. Also, shouts to Mark Silvestri for the... Uh, the bravery and the audacity of Emma showing up to Jean's grave, like like days after she's died. Oh, just in glammed just out. the sultriest outfit. <laughs> I mean, it, it, the she thing is, so but I, that's it's so. But that's such smart storytelling, right? Because yeah. what is so brilliant about you know the end of Jean and Scott here is that it feels like she's leveled up, right? Like she is a cosmic being, and with these situations, it's always like, well, how, what do they, not what do they have in common, but how can they still be together? And what we're seeing is like, as Jean is coming into her own, it's not that she's pulling away immediately, but Scott is instinctively pulling away from her and presume, and kind of sort of, you can look at Emma as, and this is, this is not a particularly deep read or anything, but it's like, oh, he's into telepaths and he's going for the grounded telepath, right? As sort of like glamorous and extravagant and extra as Emma is, she's also mm-hmm. very much a person, right? Yeah, like yeah. there is, there are so many moments throughout this arc where she's like, "You're going to pay for this twenty thousand dollars worth of plastic surgery that you ruined," right? And it's like, oh, and it's 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 all very funny, but it's also her being like, "I'm a woman," right? Like, and, and Hank talks about her as being, you know, you're a living diamond, whereas we're talking about Jean as being. A cosmic firebird flying through space, right? Yeah, Not literally, right. but that is just sort of the subtext. And <laughs> Cyclops is, um, depending on who you ask, he is, you know, he's the straightest of the X-Men, right? He is the sort of most, <clears throat> he's down the middle, um, <clears throat> mutant with a very straightforward power. He has a very sort of like clean cut sense of good and evil. And Jean yeah. is becoming this complex being who is too big for him in so many senses, right? Whereas Emma is like, hey, I do psychic tricks and I'm real sexy and I get shiny sometimes. How do you feel about that? And he's like, <laughs> yeah. I love it. I love it so much. Yeah. Right. And <laughs> part of Jean's evolution is her coming to grips with the fact that like, oh, yeah, we're not a compa- we're not who we used to be anymore. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not this quiet girl from upstate New York. I'm, I'm, wait, no, I don't know. I don't, I don't know for a fact that that's where she's from. Um thinking I, I i can see her very clearly in my mind in her in her very stylish but like dowdy dress when she first shows up at the institute you know so she's on a cul-de-sac could be, could be connecticut <laughs> yeah i don't know <laughs> she, you know she's she's not that woman anymore whereas emma um despite the fact that she clearly had moved up in her station in life is relatively closer to who she still is in the same way that scott is right mm-hmm. because because mm-hmm. of just what kind of people they are and that's so as hard as it is as a fan, I don't actually think it's hard, but as hard as it can be as a fan to sort of like see your faves break up. That's also, it's also so fascinating because I was listening to um, one of your episodes before this and you were talking about um, Peter Parker and Mary Jane and mm-hmm. how, you know, oftentimes, like she is one of the most recognizable love interests in comics. Um, and so breaking her away from Peter has just been something that Marvel editorial didn't want to do. Yeah. And with this, it feels like, like, no, we have to, it's not even when we have to. We have organically built to a breaking point for them that makes sense and can have so much more 
narrative significance to it if we really think this out, right? Yeah. That's what makes genes, you know, the fact that it's so interesting when we end up talking, when we get to talking about Astonishing X-Men, everyone's giving Gene, or rather, everyone's giving Emma and Scott shit for being together. It's like, right. oh my goodness, how could you do this? That's disgusting. Right. Meanwhile, Gene is like, no, 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 do it. Please, please, please yeah. do it. I've seen what happens when you don't. I don't want that. I need the two of you to get together and be happy because I'm busy right now. And that's so, <laughs> yeah. you know, that's something that we are meant to understand. And I think that I love it when a comic book sort of puts you as a reader in a position to have to disagree with your favorites to sort mm -hmm. of really look at a kitty pride and be like Catherine, fall back like you don't really <laughs> yeah stay out of stay out of grown folks business um uh because they're dealing with something that is larger than any of you i do actually so all right so let's i think that's a good transition segue into you know not the the direct follow-up because technically new x-men keeps going there's a couple of chuck off yeah, <laughs> and then it transitions into something else it becomes actually like you know a story of new x-men right and and younger crews which are interesting but the the spiritual successor and what was actually almost going to be just the direct new x-men follow-up is the joss <laughs> whedon and john cassidy astonishing x-men um superstar creators right this is whedon at at you know like at Buffy his is at his oh, yes. weedenist. Oh, Buffy yes. is huge. Angel is huge. This is Joe Quesada as new, you know, semi new IEC or EIC. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he's he's done the Kevin Smith thing on Daredevil. <laughs> that went great. You know, so it's like okay, like yeah, let's bring in these these Hollywood types who love comics. And Whedon is one of those, right? Uh, in every interview you've ever read about Buffy, there's a Kitty Pride reference, right? So he comes in to do Astonishing X Men, and I think one of the ways that it actually is effective um, is because it is post Morrison and Whedon does seem pretty familiar with the mm -hmm. new X-Men Morrison like that there seems to be a genuine at least they've read it and had some fandom um, there's actual comment there's actual like reconciliation with like <laughs> okay wait we, is anyone going to talk about the fact that Emma Frost like kidnapped all them and you know Kitty's first day <laughs> tried to kill her but like is anybody going to bring this stuff up and Whedon is the fan to do that and be like I, okay let, let's have that conversation I love that there's like an acknowledgement with it. I just hate that like this is the kitty that does it because yeah. like this is this is the arc where Kitty becomes Buffy, right? Like that's like that that it, it, reading. I had not read this arc truly since it came out, and yeah. my my way of reading comics has just changed with time. And so it was truly arresting to read this and start hearing Buffy because like I used to be a big Buffy and Angel fan, right? Like sure, Illyria, great character, but. Um, not saying that's neither here nor there, but sitting down and reading this kitty, it's like I can hear Sarah Michelle Geller, and it's like, Joss, please, please stop. Because I question for you, how old is she supposed to be at this point in time? That's a great question. I because mean, I would say early 20s, maybe the way, that the, the way that she is written like a child, or rather, the way that she is written like an, like an adult playing a child on television is mm. very sort of like weird. Um, I, I was taking notes as I was reading, and it's that classic, like white comics writer who had a crush on Kitty Pride as a child as, as like a totally. kid is he's yeah. just writing his girlfriend into a comic you know setting aside all the character evolution and growth that she's done and something that's so kind of I struggled with reading um reading uh Astonishing where there would be these moments where there would be a guilelessness to Kitty and sort of like a, I'm a kid but then she would have these turns like Emma I remember what you did 
right? Yeah. You know, sort of speaking with that gravity that you would expect from her. Um, that made so much sense. And the two were very at odds. It didn't, they don't, it doesn't always work as like a, the duality of Kitty. It sort of works as a, I have an agenda with Kitty, which is, you mm. know, what all writers do. And the yeah. agenda just was not being executed in a way that worked for me, especially because it, there's a lot of like, brings back a lot of the Kitty and Peter stuff. And that reads oh, yeah. as, that reads as really weird when you have her being like, a woman child you know and it's like uh, 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 um, but it's, it's complicated that, it is i mean because it's, it's you know that that initial romance she's like 13 14 she's <laughs> full child and you know it's, it's and not in the, great in the same way that it would be lovely to sort of engage with hey emma you tried to kill us be like hey peter i was a child uh i was a teenager yeah if you or, wanted to was, reconcile if you wanted to fully because okay so that's that's the thing right about the Whedon run is it is i mean this opens with kitty's back to the mansion so it is mm-hmm. like Take the Claremont and Byrne POV, you know, teenager into the team, have them come back as an adult-ish, mm-hmm. right? And and have some reflection. Have a little bit of nostalgia, but a little bit of reflection on, hey, remember those times and how have things changed and how do mm-hmm. they compare and contrast, right? And that and that's a huge part of what Astonishing X-Men is, is saying, okay, X-Men got a little weird there <laughs> during, <laughs> during the Morrison era. Um how do we kind of keep that momentum going, but mm-hmm. also get, again, back to basics, which is like my least favorite Marvel thing. But sometimes it is getting to a core, getting to a foundation can be effective. I mean, we've mm-hmm. in the club, we've been reading the Mark Wade and Mike Waringo Fantastic Four. Oh, nice. And that's a really fun run. That is very much a, what is the, what is the back to basics for Fantastic Four? Because they feel like they haven't been hitting. That's a run where I would say that does successfully. Sometimes mm-hmm. it works. Sometimes it's nice. Um, you talked about, you know, you haven't read this since since it came out. Astonishing X-Men for me was, I mean, this was the gateway drug mm. for me into X-Men. Okay. It absolutely okay. was. Um, I had tremendous affinity to the point where, you know, so I read this in like the 2010s. Yeah. And I watched the motion comic first. I don't know if you remember <laughs> Marvel doing motion oh, comics. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which was like comics, not quite animation. Um, but I watched that and I was obsessed I was like, I have to read this. I read it. I loved it. I didn't know anything about why Colossus. It, it, we're going to spoil this, right? Spoilers for everything. Why Colossus was dead. You know, I didn't know anything about it, but I thought oh, it yeah. seemed so cool. They had, had such gravity, I thought. So I was very nervous to come back and read this because I was mm-hmm. like, I have held, I have hold this on a pedestal in my head. Um, it's one of those things, too, where it's like, you know, I don't know if the Whedon dialogue is going to like just absolutely grate at me now. Like, what's going to happen? I actually had a pretty good time reading this again. I gotta say, like Cassidy stuff looks great. I love the I love the designs. I love the colors. Laura Martin on this. Um, it's not perfect. There are definitely things that I read now, like Emma Frost's speech at the beginning. We can get into in terms of like I don't know, kind of the optics of what mutant should be in her turn. And there are things that I read now, and I'm like, oh, that that seemed really wise at the time. But now I read it, and I'm like, I don't know. I don't think that works. Um, but generally speaking, I was I had a pretty good time rereading this i feel like the pacing is excellent yeah i feel like whedon and cassidy basically they're like okay if we got to do one x-men movie you know what would we do mm-hmm. and as it goes like <laughs> it's a pretty good movie <laughs> like you know it, it gets to the core of the team and it wipes away the morrison uh uh breaking out of cycles it does the exact opposite you know and in some regards i find that a little disappointing um but again as gateways into the franchise i'm like oh, yeah this still this still works for me uh, no i i like i i i have my issues with it but i can totally see why this was successful and what grabbed people about it yeah. right like i actually think that 
you, you were talking about how this arc really is a return to form to like the superhero-ness of the X-Men, and that's true, but I think that what really jumped out for me was the way that this establishes Cyclops and Emma as teachers. Mm-hmm. I actually think her, her speech that she gives at the beginning is fantastic, right? Mm-hmm. I actually think it's a... It is the perfect crystallization of everything that she's been through in the Morrison arc, right? Everything that she has seen, because she's not new to being a teacher, right? But she has gone through incredible loss after thinking that she was indestructible, you know, pre-Diamond. You know, she was sort of like, I'm Emma Frost. Yeah. I'm doing my I'm doing my heroic teacher, nurturer thing. We are on Genosha. It's all going to be fantastic. And all of that was stripped away from her. And I feel like, if anything, that, that entire experience informed not just informed but sort of gave her an insight into what charles was always working for working towards with the school sort of the deeper significance of the teacherness of the x-men for all of them sort of became much more clear for emma and that clarity was not a uniform like softening towards her students Mm. um it was and not just a uniform hardening, it was uh, a, sh- a very particular kind of sharpening, right? I think that throughout this issue, you can see that she understands the necessity and importance of her leaning into her nurturing side, but also keeping these kids ready, right? Yeah. And yeah. that is such a fascinating kind of space to have the X-Men as teachers in, right? Like, it's not necessarily new per se, but to come so quick, to come for this to be juxtaposed with the Morrison run... Um, if you'd have to write it obviously it wouldn't necessarily work for new readers but it's sort of presenting you with like look we're back to basics but we haven't forgotten what we've been through and you right. as new students at this facility you have to understand that we're not getting you ready for college we're getting you ready to survive um, mm. because that is, that is what it is to be an X-Men and that's such yeah. a great sort of recentering of the why do like why why are the mutants doing all of this because it because it the, I feel like every every few years you do need a reminder. You, like there does need to be a centering with the mutants, right? Um, and you have to sort of put them on the defensive uh, because you let the mutants go on unchecked too long, and the whole like, well, mutants are a persecuted minority who shouldn't be hunted. And it's like I don't know, like most of your kids are bombs. Um, there's a reason that people are afraid of you, and so you do have to sort of you have to humanize them, right? You have to bring them back down in order for the metaphor to keep, you know, working as well as it can. Yeah. And this does that so well through, this does that so well through Scott and Emma because of the persecution, a lot of the persecution that they're facing is from their peers, right? It's sort right. of like, they, and it's it's from their, the, the, the unfortunate thing for them is that their peers can't know that what they're doing is fine, right? Like Gene's not going to come back and be like, it's fine, I gave him a pass, Right. They are working with the information that they have. And Scott Scott and Emma, they don't know either, right? Like, they don't really have any cognizance of the fact that Gene is giving them their blessing. They are just sort of out there as a two-person island uh, at the school, just kind of trying to be a a skeezy couple in peace. And all of their friends are like, (laughs) absolutely not. Y'all don't smell the death in this school. Shame on you. And that's such a... That feels like such a, a clever way of like really kind of bringing the X-Men into a really human space that makes them easy to project into and want to 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 sort of follow along with. I just wish it wasn't so quippy. There's so many, there's so many like, <laughs> yeah, it's there's so cool. many just like, I get, and I, I, I'm not one to, far be it for me to say that Joss Whedon shouldn't write in Joss Whedon's voice, sure, but everyone's doing it. Um, and it does, it does have, it does have the, the feel of an Avengers movie script. Yes. Uh, the, you know, it, it is that sort of, we're all fighting and standing next to each other and, you know, making deadpans at each other. And it's like, don't, don't. 
Okay. Very much the, the Whedon stylistic. I mean, Bendis kind of has the same thing, too, honestly, once he oh, starts oh, yeah. New Avengers, oh, yeah. right? And it's a similar, you do get writers who just get so caught in that, you know, Stanley the Manly <laughs> approach of everything's a quip. But then you kind of like, it's like, okay, but there are like, there it's are characters who the... are less prone to that. <laughs> like, well, can you acknowledge that? <laughs> you it's know? fun, but it's also, it's sort of like we have to... Is a time and a place for everything. Yeah, yeah, totally. I, I think you're right that, um, you know, Whedon has the not small task of establishing Emma and Scott as the new leaders of the school. Because this is also a moment where it's like, okay, the Morrison run went so hard at the end that, like, okay, Professor X is gone. He has left. Mm-hmm. Um, he's not with the school. And it is. It's a real changing of the guard moment. And you do have to sell that and establish that. Again, like, Emma's the one giving this big speech all the students at mm-hmm. the school and this isn't a school book but it does do the work of being like you know scott and emma are leading that charge they are mm-hmm. they are taking that all on their shoulders to keep that going because it's important um and then you have beast and kitty and of course wolverine mm-hmm. as a very small unit you know so as i think it is smart to keep it a small team um especially for something that is kind of operating on a, a movie-esque scale, right? Yeah. You don't get it. You get some new characters and little, you know, some some students and things like that. But you, it gives you room to hone in on these characters. Um, so I, I do think Whedon does a nice job establishing Emma and Scott. There is also a nice build of Scott specifically as kind of becoming a hardened leader, kind of mm-hmm. really owning and accepting that he's not just Xavier's pupil anymore, right. that he is, in fact, his own person and a leader of this team. It doesn't all happen here in these first six issues, um, but definitely as the run progresses, it gets stronger and stronger. I mean, I think I would not be the first to note that this is kind of the the beginning of cool Cyclops. <laughs> for the, I mean, I guess really it's more... Like, really, it's like when he gets drunk with Wolverine in the Hellfire Club in New X-Men. Like, I feel like that's the beginning. Like, the, the first time Scott drinks, he immediately becomes cool. <laughs> but, <laughs> but otherwise, it's this run, definitely builds and establish like no like he's the he's the hardened leader who's kind of holding the the weight of mutantum on his shoulders and emma is is doing it alongside him um to your point about the return of kitty and kind of all the nostalgia that that brings i think it offers some good commentary kind of on on again kind of the compare and contrast of where x-men were and where they are now Mm. um there is definitely a fanishness um, with Whedon and that character that I think when you get behind the scenes can be irritating at times. Um, I do. So one of the big builds in this arc is there's a mysterious alien. We don't know if they're an alien initially, but there's this, this alien, you know, who is, uh, kind of behind the scenes pulling the strings and they have worked with Dr. Kavita Rao, who Mm -hmm. announces the cure. So like Mm. the big, the, the kind of the biggest thing that we haven't mentioned is, there's a cure for mutantum. A scientist <laughs> has developed it. They have announced it. And then that, now we kind of have semi-dealing with all the ramifications that that means, right? And kind of the immediate fear that that brings for mutants who, especially within the Xavier School, who have come to accept their powers, right? Mm-hmm. And are tremendously afraid of, well, is that going to mean forced cures? Is that going right. like, right? Like, what are the scary ways that that develops, which are genuine fears? The comfort, it's not a... It doesn't really delve too deep into the politics and the um, kind of the ethics of the cure, which I actually mm. think is good because I think that stuff would probably get messy uh, uh, in in these particular hands. <laughs> you know, <laughs> no, it's, it's it's really smart that he 
that we ultimately ends up focusing through Beast on mm-hmm. the personal choice of it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's actually a really good turn. I think it's an issue five, might be six, where they're talking about the the little girl who becomes the poster child for why the cure is necessary. Um, mm-hmm. You know, this little girl who has armor-like powers. Um, it's it's I, I, I couldn't help but notice that, like, you know, killer dream girl, uh, her powers manifest very much like armors do. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Beast is very much like you know. If it had been me, you know, this situation might be entirely different because he can articulate what it is that he would personally benefit from, right? And I think that something that doesn't necessarily it didn't land with me when I read it as a child, but definitely reads now is like to the general public there is a simplicity to this girl's dreams killed her parents. Of course, she wants to get rid of her mutant mm-hmm. gene. There's a simplicity to that that makes her an easy sell but the more interesting story is with someone like hank right like what does it mean for your your life to have been materially made worse because of the superficial differences that you have with baseline humans at the same time that you recognize or you're hypothesizing that your body is evolving specifically to protect your prejudiced brain right we've seen we've seen hank thinking through his mutations from all these perspectives you know throughout um morrison's run and then with Astonishing, we have him coming at the end of all this thinking and being like, look, I love myself. Like I do, And that's the interesting thing about this. I never re- there, it never really feels like a, like a place of like self-hatred with Hank. It yeah. really does feel like life has been made so much harder for me. Um, and I'm not even a mutant whose powers like <laughs> are destructive, destructive. I'm not a chamber, right? Like, but yeah, yeah. Per, like the, one of the most basic forms of prejudice, you not liking the way I look, has made it so hard for me to just be a person that I've been driven to really be seriously considering this. And that's so interesting, right? Like that, that, that sticks the right that landed with me um, here. I, I actually wish there was more B stuff with the cure, frankly, because I think it is mm. so effective. Um, you know, this is a character too. Hank McCoy does not start with blue fur, right? The, the silver age X-Men with Lee and Kirby He's a human. He just has big feet. Big <laughs> he's, a, man. he's a jock. He's a celebrated athlete, right? Before he comes to the Xavier School, he experiments on himself, right? right? And and, cre- and accidentally creates this situation where he's actually more of a mutant, right? At least visually, right? And he is, you know, Cyclops, Kitty, Emma, Wolverine, they can all pass very easily, mm-hmm. right? They don't have the big blue cat-like concerns. And I, I think one thing Morrison does that always kind of... One of the more haunting scenes, I think, in that run is when Cassandra Nova toys with Beast and devolves him and he loses his intellect and he becomes mm. a cat like creature. That, you know, I find those scenes haunting, but like those are haunting for Hank McCoy, right? Like yeah. those are moments that he's like, I don't want to become that. I'm so scared of becoming that. So I do think he's a really effective centerpiece to actually analyze the cure through because, mm-hmm. you know, Wolverine, when he learns that Beast is considering using the cure, lashes out violently he's like how could you you know what will that mean for the school what will that mean for the mission we have more important dreams but it's like it's like logan could you be a friend <laughs> like could right, you like the, could you talk to him about this this is complicated you know it does feel that way we i i i'm curious if you know off the top of your head who is the patsy that dumps hank in morrison's run is it it's not patsy walker is uh it, it's just, is it trish trish tilby or the, is it, uh, it's uh the news reporter Yes, 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 yes. Like that, that is so, it's almost played for a laugh, right? Because mm-hmm. I think yeah. she dumps him over the phone. 
you know, and he's all dressed up in his suit, looking very debonair, and then he gets really sad. But it's like, that's so... I don't know how many times we've seen an X-Men being broken up with. Um, yeah. Setting aside, like, the ones where they're breaking up with each other, which I feel like don't really count. Um, that's just kind of like, you know, that's just a lover's tiff that may resolve later. But to yeah. sort of see him just really go through a kind of loss and not have anyone to share it with, like, that's the that's the thing that really, like, jumps at me there. Like, he is in this moment where it's just Hank McCoy trying to be, trying to go out and, like, live his life like a normal person. He's just been denied sort of, like, a very basic kind of casual pleasure that all of his peers take for granted and no one despite everyone being all up in each other's business no one takes the time to like really talk to him about it and doesn't really seem like anyone's ever paying attention to it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah no when he's kind of i mean the thing about beast through these runs is like you know we talk about scott and emma taking the weight of the leadership and they are but like so much falls on beast so much of the time Mm. Um, anytime there's, you know, legacy virus, anytime there's an issue, right? It's send Hank to the lab and resolve it. And then at the same time, he's actually the most vulnerable of all these characters. You know, again, like the POV is put on Kitty and there's a a romance element that comes in that we can talk about. Mm. But I, I just, I don't know, reading it, I, I definitely see the most vulnerability in Beast with this cure where he's like... He's like, I at least have to think about it. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a, that's a good place to be as opposed to having all the X-Men kind of in unison being like, no, no cure. You know, this will lead to, you know, forced usage by the government and all the, the fears that, you know, you could have. Um, but it's it's an interesting conversation, I think, at least uh, with that character. So I, I do find that part of it effective. And again, I think it's smart not to overanalyze sort of what it means and who should be cured. And I don't know, it's kind of just raising like being a mutant is not a perfect metaphor, you know? And Mm -hmm. I don't know that this is Whedon's intent, but it is one of those things where it's like sometimes mutant powers kill people. Like this is not a direct metaphor for marginalization. It can be very Mm -hmm. effective in its way, but like in this superhero universe, there are superhero differences, right? And it also, it makes them, it makes mutants more interesting, I think, to sort of, we don't have to sit here and deny that mutant discrimination is a thing. It definitely mm. is. But, like, let's think about what that is. Like, think about what that means exactly. And what kind of, like, intra-community um, complications arise from that, right? What does it mean for a beast to see his friends, his good-looking, model-esque friends, you know, Emma just walking around and, and you know, luxury she in? What does it mean for him to be like, you use that word you you all mutant you all you you all speak the language of persecution with such a fervency that does not scan with the way that you all look right mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. you take like put in your ruby contacts scott um no one will know what <laughs> yeah. what your deal is emma people are staring at you because of how you're dressed not because of the fact that you're a mutant mm-hmm. right and that is something that i feel like x-men fans we all know at the back of our minds but it isn't always grounded at the forefront of like X-Men comics Um, or when it is it tends to sort of become a point of contention that gets boiled down into like I don't like you because you're prettier than me and that's like that that, that's like that's part of it sure Um, but there is a much sort of thornier messier kind of unsolvable reality that's more interesting to exist in where it's like you never get the sense that Hank is ashamed of being a mutant or that he it's not that he it's, he does have regrets about what's happened to him. It's not that he doesn't wish that he was a mutant. It's just that he is grappling with 
the material difficulties of his reality and that's yeah. something that can't be solved i don't think it should be solved that's kind of like with a character like hank i feel like that should always be there in some capacity because it's it is his truth yeah it's it's very similar to i think reed and, and ben Grimm, where it's like mm, you have the mm-hmm, smartest mm-hmm. friend in the world and he can't fix your rocky hide you know and it's just kind of this sticking point where it's like listen if you wanted to, it, it almost it doesn't make sense and it's kind of the point is like it it actually is more effective when it doesn't make sense hank is so smart and yet the thing he can't fix is himself right Mm -hmm. and it 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 makes it hit a lot harder i think in a lot of ways um okay before we get into the um or maybe this will tie in but like kind of before we get into like the resolution and kind of where this goes plot wise with the return of a character uh you mentioned some things irritate you now rereading this let's talk about some of those what are the things that reading this arc again you're like oh like that that's a problem um hmm, hmm. so there you can go in alphabetical order uh the priority <laughs> <laughs> so throughout morrison's run there is a pronounced kind of queerness i feel like that that's very present um yeah in a lot of scott and logan's interactions um that feels like the intimacy born of spending a lot of time with each other and clearly being romantically interested in the same woman, but also having come to a bit of a ceasefire because she has made her choice in, to a certain extent. Yeah. And then like, this is my choice and here's where I am. There is so much casual homophobia um, in this that I mm-hmm. truly just, I was like, what is this for? Um, what are we doing? Uh, yeah. I, I, there's a way there's you know reading reading comics from different points in time you have to be cognizant of like where the culture was at at the time but like in a in, in an x book like casual homophobia just really kind of just doesn't fly it just doesn't work yeah um as uh especially in quippy joke form it's like joss whedon what do we um do we know what book this is uh is this mm-hmm. is is uh, so that that's that that's one of the first things that jumped out of me. But I do have to come back to the kitty of it all um, because I do think that we it's, just, it's not covered in the issues that we read. There is a growth going on with Kitty, right? We do sort of see her come into a kind of heroism toward like I don't want to spoil anything, but there there are things coming for Kitty and that there are things coming for Kitty that sort of are meant to show you oh she truly has grown up in the time that she's been away from the school and in yeah. coming back here she doesn't necessarily know how much she's grown but she is going to test her medal and we're all going to see it and she's going to do something really great i just feel like there is such a way in which we cannot decontextualize kitty from his own feelings about her that are really rooted in her childhood in a way that mm. feels just not in service of the story at all um it does sort of feel like an appeal to fans and as a non kitty pride fan um kitty kitty pride just i as a kid i was always like well what are your powers exactly and phasing just never struck me as being particularly cool um (laughs) yeah and there's just there's there's and so to, to see to see the here's kitty and to see the the presentation be like remember when she said all these things from the 80s it just really kind of struck me as being stuck in time and i think it works better when you actually read the whole arc because you do sort of see the progression of it but just like as a snapshot yeah. here it does feel very sort of like arrested development in a way that like i don't care for i think um, there's a way that too that it, it definitely reflects the worst impulses of a a run that is a back to basics or a a sort of rooted in nostalgia thing where it's like the kitty stuff is so rooted in nostalgia 
And I, I, I often find that if a run is trying to like course correct from something that was <clears throat> progressive, that was moving things forward, that was trying to break cycles, and it does so by being like, hey, remember the stuff we used to love? That's the yeah. worst thing superhero comics can do a lot of times. And there's, I don't know, I don't think it's horrible, but I, I think Kitty, her role, especially early, is like, it's reference kind of nostalgia it's references but it's also references that sort of feel at odds with each other because i feel like Mm. in the first issue she's like i'm kitty i can't fight and it's like "Mm, i'm pretty sure you were ninja i'm pretty sure ninja you were a (laughs) whole ninja you can fight if there's one thing that you can do it's fight Um, (laughs) and but then like she says i can't fight but then emma's like here are all of your silly code names from way back when so it's like okay so we do remember that like kitty has had a life right like people know and even wolverine is like I'd want you by my side, Bob. And so it's like, all right, well, so Kitty, do you do do you not remember your own past? Um, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you well, know, it is that... it is too. Like, what about the whole Excalibur era of Kitty? You know, because there's like there's like 15 years of Kitty stuff that isn't X Men team. You know, and yeah, that's like, yes, yes, out the window. And that's that, and that's exactly the kind of thing that you would think that she that sort of feels like the place that she should be coming from with her critiques of Emma, right? Because mm-hmm. then, as guileless as she is throughout most of this. Then suddenly she turns on a heel and she's like, I see, I smell you, Emma Frost. And it's like, I'm, <laughs> it's like, Kitty Pride, this is, you're, you're coming on very strong all of a sudden. And it all just feels um, not out of character for Kitty Pride, the whole character. But here, the, the there's an inconsistency uh, that highlights the degree to which her presence here is more sort of like a, I love Kitty as opposed to a, I have a distinct plan for Kitty that I want to execute in a very sort mm. of thought out kind of way, which, yeah. you know, that's, that's a writing style. Like I, it's the story gets there eventually, right? Yeah. She thankfully does not stay stuck in this place, but it is so kind of, it is such just like a, a glaring and obvious kind of choice that doesn't quite work. But that's, again, I'm just speaking from my own perspective and I, there are a lot of I'm sure there are plenty of people who just uh, loved it (laughs) no for sure I mean it's a it's a celebrated beloved run um and again like I you know I talked about like it was a fantastic gateway for me it really made me love it made me want to read a billion X-Men comics right and I feel like you know as gateway X-Men comics go like that's mission accomplished like <laughs> like that's like a great this made thing me, i this made me want to go read more about abigail brand who is a character yeah. i do not always care about i always find my whole my thing with abigail is like the x-men should not trust her like like it should the x-men with the x-men and abigail it should always be on site right yeah there should never yeah, yeah. be any diplomacy it's like absolutely the fuck not get out of here um and this made me want to spend more time with her um mm. just because again i keep talking about where the x comics are now but it's so interesting to see you know agent brand walking around with white nick fury um and to see her now sort of acting you know to to, you know being this really um close close close-ish colleague of furies and rather well the x-men's and really sort of acting um as one of the team to a certain to a certain extent i feel like interesting i feel like Abigail Brand is in a position now with the X-Men where Emma Frost was when she first defected. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where they're right. all kind of like, girl, I don't know. Like, I know you can I know you can be helpful. But, mm, your outfit says that you want to kill us. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, and they should have memories that. I mean, it's definitely, it's a really good addition here um, by Whedon and Cassidy is the addition of Abigail Brand and Sword. Mm-hmm. I mean, they debut here. And because we get, you know, some nice kind of shared universe stuff with Scott going to Nick Fury, white Nick Fury, as you say, um, and uh, and going in and being like, hey, can you help us? <laughs> you know, like like mutants need help. 
And Nick Fury's the first one to be like, hey, remember Magneto in Manhattan? He's the first, <laughs> he, like, he actually does call that out, which, like, fair enough, fair enough. <coughs> like, so, so few characters reference that. And in the moment, I'm like, okay, that actually, yes, this works, I think. I also just, like, I, I my Nick Fury is black, but I do love, I do <laughs> love just the sort of, the hard boil, like I know you're not coming up here and talking to me like this, Cyclops. Are you crazy? Like yeah, yeah. I, my my like you're a child. You know, you are a you are a whole child. Um, yeah. I remember when you were running around in Rochester with that old man in the wheelchair. Please <laughs> fall back because you people cannot be trusted. And it's yeah. so that to me, like I I am not always a crossover fan, but I do love it when the universe touches like this. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly mm-hmm. just for these asides, like stay in your lane, mutants. We we do see you, and the mutants in response being like, "Oh my God, why are you hiding these things from us? Do you have do do you have our boy under like uh, Where is Peter? Where is yeah, Peter? Yeah. Like that's such a that to me is such a um, bringing a character back from the dead is always kind of tricky, right? Because it's sort of you have to make it you have to make it work. You have to make it like work emotionally and narratively because um, just bringing someone back is like eh, and the impressive thing about the way that Colossus returns in this arc um, is first, the first sort of like node of the Colossus coming back story for me is like Kitty, right? Mm-hmm. That scene, that scene where she is descending through a hundred feet of a metal that messes with her and she's like, oh, it feels weird, um, is one, a great bit of foreshadowing for something that comes along later, right? Mm-hmm. Like that is, and that is, that, that things like that, I'm like, ah, oh, okay, Whedon has some, you know, he's, he's, he knows what he's doing to a certain Some smart uh, long-term planning, for sure. There's some yeah. smart planning going on here. Um, but then the panel, you know, that is, that's sort of like seared into everyone's memories is like Kitty being like, oh shit, right? And having Colossus just run right through her. Yeah. That is such a... That is such a smart way of setting the stage for what this death, how shocking this return is supposed to be. Because as an onboarding comic, <clears throat> you know, new readers might not necessarily have any understanding of where, uh, I hate that he's Peter, Peter, um, where he's been, <laughs> yeah. what took him out exactly, right? But through Kitty, and honestly, this kind of works, this kind of ends up working to explain why there's so much nostalgia here. After seeing Kitty walking through the mansion and remembering her past self and, you know, seeing her holding the mistletoe over Peter's head, Mm -hmm. that juxtaposed with her just, like, straight shock and not knowing how to react at all, you know, after replaying all these things in her head, that works so well just to convey to you, like, oh, he's been gone. Like, and not just, like, 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 not just dead, but, like, that presumed, it's weird to read an ex, it's it's weird reading ex-comics, old ex-comics in 2023 when, like, mutant resurrection is a thing and everyone's like yeah. oh no this person is dead and it's like well, put them in the microwave they'll be right back it's fine <laughs> yeah. um, but it works so well here um i do think cassidy does a fantastic job expressing shock <laughs> in yeah. kitty's face and dumbfoundedness you know, to, like yeah dumbfounded yeah and you know to whedon's credit like he actually holds off uh, on a, on a quip for like at least a beat um <laughs> <laughs> and and I, you get the I same do- thing Oh, God. I, it, like once I do think I do think that like standing I, I do think the it is like, as a piece of art the those two panels where Kitty has the bullets coming through her and you see yeah Peter running through her brilliant art it, that to me does feel like a weed and quip I can I, I it, mm. it feels I feel like <laughs> Visually, in yeah. that moment it's like Buffy seeing hmm it's like Buffy seeing Angel coming back from the dead right yeah, I yeah. can to, I can totally see that being written as like a huh and then cut to commercial break you know what i mean 
Yeah, sure, sure. No, for sure. But it, I think, you know, because you get the same thing with the team, with Wolverine and, and all them staring and just because, you know, they have these long histories with Colossus. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm, it's, yeah, not a, yeah. it's not a death that we spend a lot of time on, even in the club. I don't think we even read the issues. Because honestly, like, by the time it happens, like, pretty ready to move on from the cycles of the legacy virus. Like, it, mm-hmm. it, 90s comics really, like, just spin their wheels on that puppy so hard, you know, and it doesn't do a heck of a lot. And then Colossus, you know, he he sacrifices himself. It kind of resolves it. It allows things to move on. Um, I find the resurrection a lot more effective than I found, you know, necessarily the death of, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And even though it hadn't been that long. And again, it's one of those things where, you know, you mentioned like, yeah, we're in an era where, you know, death of a character is like le- means less than ever. Um, but even even here at this point, it's like, yeah, like superhero stories like everybody everybody gets a turn right everybody gets turned die and come back even before we had resurrection um but this one it's good it's good um it 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 works really well there's there's this kind of this even if you don't know the history there is just a sense of this is a big deal um and i think that's the thing that i gravitated to so much the first go around again like as i said like as a gateway it was like it didn't the history of it didn't matter it just felt like everyone is shocked and dumbfounded and he is mad <laughs> yeah, yeah, and he's yeah, unleashing yeah, yeah. that rage. And I was like, okay, yeah, that's all I need to know. So any additional uh, uh, commentary here, uh, important things we haven't covered on Astonishing X-Men? Hmm. <laughs> I mean, the big thing that we haven't mentioned so far is, so we mentioned Abigail Brandon's sword. The reason they're in these comics is because Ord of the Break World. Ord the of the Break World. Villain is here. He's an alien. Uh, he, they, his people of the break world have foreseen that a mutant is going to lead to like the genocide of their planet. And that's why sword gets involved and why Nick Fury's kind of hiding some things, not mm-hmm. you know, he's always hiding things, but hiding this specifically is because they're Abigail brand is like, we would rather have like one mutant arrested and, and, or cured Improved. than an entire genocide with an alien right. species that we have, you know, treaties with that would cause, and Abigail Brandt's whole thing is always like, Earth is, you know, like, important to me, but I also am in charge of the entire universe, right? Like, she's not, you know, she is Nick Fury times the universe, <laughs> um, which you don't necessarily get here, but I think as the character has progressed, it's always, I don't know, I kind of see her as like, you know, like, just like, almost more pragmatic, almost more Machiavellian Nick Fury, mm. you know, because because Nick's got the ties to the heroes, and, you know, he fought in the war with Captain America, and underneath it all, there's always a sense of, like, you know, oh, I'll, I'll work with you at the end of the day. Abigail Brand's truly... She's playing everyone. Always playing everyone, always yeah. out for her own schemes, which are in her head to the interest of protecting the whole universe but like that's not especially different than like dr doom <laughs> right <laughs> right <laughs> so um but a cool a cool character edition and uh and i don't know Ord is kind of stock monster of the week type thing but he he allows this introduction of an alien race and sword that i think is is fairly effective it it works you know yeah. he's he's not the most I think the way they, they, they end up chasing him down when he gets, uh, when he's attempting to flee the planet is very sort of, it highlights how much of a monster of the week he is. Um, yeah, right. Uh, and, and that's fine, I think, um, especially given, I think the, turning the threat of Breakworld into one person would have belied the, the significance of the problem, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because at this point, the X-Men's 
career they have tried like they have they have dabbled in like global diplomacy humans we are the x-men we come in peace and it just hasn't worked out and they haven't we've seen gene attempt to do diplomacy so many times and mm, reading this now again like juxtaposed with the current era of x comics where the 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 x-men have had a much more successful time at being like stewards of their people and representatives on a cosmic scale here they're just really kind of still getting you know used to it and i love that abigail She's not the first time because they've had, you know, interactions with the Shi'ar before that are very sort of in a similar realm. But this is really sort of bringing them back into that space of like, you need to really sort of understand that you are out of your depth here when it comes Mm. to doing a kind of politic that is cognizant of people beyond yourselves. Mm -hmm. And I think that Ord is, you know, Ord's relative smallness in the grand scheme of things is in service of that. And I guess the other piece of this too, that it kind of quickly undoes the cure you know, because the revelation here is Ord brought technology, alien technology that allowed mm-hmm. for the cure with Dr. Kavita Rao. Um, they also experimented on, you know, Colossus and like dead mutants. So there's kind of a, a dark side to the cure being developed, which pretty quickly, I, I, it, it, Whedon kind of has his cake and eats it too, where he's like, well, you know, Logan destroyed a bunch of their machines, so they could bring it back in a few months if they want to. But, but you know, basically he's saying, like, well, we're kind of done with the cure story for now. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And, and so while this becomes, like, this becomes the basis for a third X-Men movie. It's so interesting yeah. to see, like, that, like, X3 has a bit of this, and there's a lot of, like, that, that sequence where he picks up, where Magneto picks up the Golden Gate Bridge. That's pulled right from um, Planet X. Mm-hmm. Um, it's you know it's just all of that and it's so it's wild to think of Fox being like these two runs right here these ridiculous crazy runs with the <laughs> phoenix in a far flung future and then yeah. dead gene turn them into a movie um, yeah yeah no yeah. and uh, and it became my least favorite X movie I had, so, I had such high <laughs> hopes I was in high school at the time I had such high hopes for actually like I loved X2 and man did that crush my spirit the the, the back to backs of Spider-Man 3 and X3 was a tough time tough time it for was teenage, rough Dave. it was rough and it's <laughs> like you, you you think to yourself like oh the wigs have gotten so much better maybe that's a yeah. maybe that's a sign of good things to come but mm, no it, it was not it was not sadly <laughs> um, no I, I mean yeah at the end of the day I enjoyed this run quite a bit um, I was pleasantly surprised to find that it holds up reasonably well yeah. um, I think like you said there are definitely you know it like I mean, listen, it is, it's like so many early 2000s comics, like, but I don't want to use that as an excuse. Like, there's casual homophobia that you should be worried about. Casual homophobia? There's just, uh, someone just drops the R word out of nowhere. And I'm like, Marvel editorial, what's going on? It's in every damn book. Like, it's it's in every book, and it's, and it's always, it's so weird, because then, you know, you'll be reading another book, and it's like, don't say muty, it's a slur. And it's like, all right, Marvel, like, let's, let's pump the brakes, because we, in as much as the X-Men can function as like um, an onboarding for people to come into a kind of social consciousness and understanding about like discrimination, you really do have to be cognizant of like, are you just perpetuating the thing that you're critiquing in your book? Because like, mm. that's mm. what that is, right? Yeah. It doesn't, you know, the mutant discrimination metaphor is very useful for children, <laughs> you know, like for young children who were like yeah, first yeah. getting used to things. but. It only works, but so far. And then you start to read the rest of the content of the book, and it's like, oh, baby, this isn't. This is coming from a place of not greatness. That uh, yeah. is an unforced error. Um, but yeah, you know. that's a, I mean, that's a good way to put it. Unforced error because it is that thing. It's like it adds there's no reason. There's no yeah. It's, there's no addition. It's whenever when I swear to God, every time a, a cat like a mutant 
like an X-Men villain, and it's always like humans, like drops a random slur. It's like, well, it didn't make you any more interesting. It's like, okay, great. So now you're just the drunk in the bar who conflates gay people with mutants and okay, uh, it's like I, I already didn't like you <laughs> we were fine <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and, and in the end it's 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 i feel like the the justice is never what i want like if i, if yeah, I see yeah. you dropping a slur in a book i want to see you vaporized and i feel like there are very <laughs> right. few characters it's like you know emma emma you know emma will make someone walk off a bridge if there's no one else around but it's yeah, yeah. it's it's so it's it, there, there's there's no reason for it yeah, she does. She does find unique punishments, which I I do appreciate about her. <laughs> um, okay, so no, super super interesting reading. I think um, definitely in in conjunction with G. Tutter too. It does like it very much shows you. Okay, what's the Marvel plan for post Morrison X Men? Mm-hmm. I think in a lot of ways, um, because I think it's going to be reflective of of other X Men books as well, where they're kind of like pretty quickly distancing themselves from at least the end of the run. You know, mm-hmm. and, and we're going to see this, like, in the club, we'll read kind of the specifics of that with Magneto and Professor X. Um, probably the things that scared <laughs> editorial the most, um, which somehow made it to print. So good on Morrison for that. Uh, any any final thoughts here that you want to get out before we... Uh, oh, I guess we, we do... I do. You, so reading these again, you know, we've kind of alluded to it here and there, but like, all right, full spoilers now. Like, what were the things that reading it now in comparison to uh, Krakoa and... And where the X Men are at, that you're like, oh, this is especially interesting. Um, with everything we've talked to, I love, you know, it's it's obviously done retroactively. What chimeras have become as yeah. like, rather to 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 sort of, I guess what the, the interesting thing about the Krakoa era is that it has felt like it is filling in some of the gaps, right, in between Planet X and Here Comes Tomorrow, and it's not that they're, it's not that it's this is exactly what happened in that interim time, right? We were talking about parallel um, universes and realities earlier. In as much as parallel realities can just sort of be situations in which certain scenarios that would have played out anyway just play out a little bit differently, that's what it feels like we're seeing with Krakoa, right? Mm-hmm. Like how do how do we get <clears throat> how do we get to the beast? Um, it's not necessarily sublime, right? Um, how do, or rather, how do we get chimeras? It's not necessarily by way of sublime controlling beast, right? It is through Sinister's uh, pits on yeah. Mars, right? Yeah. Um, Which and conceptually are like the same, right? It's, 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 he it's he the has same the thing. genetic database of all the mutants. Like that's specifically mentioned, yeah. But yeah, no, I literally read like the mutant gene base, and it's like the mutant gene base is that is that is the crux of Krakoa. Right, mm-hmm. and it is it is it is it is the reason that they are immortal. It is the reason that they are able to sort of step on to the glo- well, not the global stage, but the, like a cosmic stage and establishing Earth as you know the or rather establishing Mars slash Araco as the capital of a soul system. So mm-hmm. much of that feels like it is tap or picking up on or tapping into threads that are being sort of teased out in planet x and to a certain extent in astonishing x-men with all yeah. of the stuff with uh break world that is so satisfying now as someone who read it because it easily all of these things easily could have just fallen to the wayside um, right. as is often the case with dystopian realities because the difficulty is how do we get there right um do we as editorial feel beholden to do step by step by step like this is exactly how we get from point a to point b and here are all these markers along the way that let you know that all everything is the same Mm -hmm. this just feels like a very elegant way of being like 
these predetermined beats that were just going to play out in this universe, they are playing out slightly differently and in a slightly more fascinating way that also brings back a lot of dead characters in a, in a way that is just very has just been very fun and satisfying um yeah. interesting to see um i love I definitely oh go ahead go ahead well i love seeing well I, we didn't really talk about the cuckoos all that much um oh yeah in good point. planet x and i love seeing the growth and the evolution that the cuckoos have gone through 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 uh, during the krakoa era um you know the concept of a mutant circuit is the thing that likes me up the most about the hickman era and mm. to see it's so interesting to like see the concept of a circuit be explored through the cuckoos because that's what they were they were just a, you know a naturally occurring mutant circuit uh, right. before that was a thing that people really talked about yeah. and to see their circuitry be parlayed into like a kind of significance like a legitimate significance like they're not just telepaths anymore um they're not just you know emma frost's cloned embryos they're seers essentially you know yeah. they are sort of tapping into whatever sort of deep power psychics are capable of when they're really sort of working, you know, at the height of their powers. And that is just like, I, I, that's something that's so, I'm very curious what it would have looked like for Marvel to try to build to that with the cuckoos. Um, in I was just sort thinking, because like you know, cognitive visions is a huge deal, right? It's a, hu it's a huge era. deal and it's something that's come to sort of be a huge deal in a lot of Marvel events. Mm -hmm. um and for the longest time uh the cuckoos were just never sort of like a part of that even though there yeah. was like precedent for it um but with the hickman era it's sort of there have there has been so much hinting and teasing about like the significance of the five and one now that esme and irma was irma the dead one i forget <laughs> you'll have to tell me i'm so bad with their names yeah <laughs> but now that they're all back um yeah i i i um i've lost my train of but <laughs> no, it's, it's it's cool to see them in this role. I think in a in Here Comes Tomorrow. I definitely I definitely gravitated to the Beast stuff pretty heavily on this mm -hmm. reread because you know Beast's role throughout the Benjamin Percy written books in X Force and Wolverine has been this just absolute continued uh, descent because it doesn't. You're seeing right. Here. You're seeing that same thing. Yeah. Yeah, but it's really a descent into now just like Bondian archvillain Beast, which I'm really enjoying <laughs> the hell out of. And, uh, but this is, especially the Cure stuff, actually, I was like, oh, like, because cause Moira's thing in Inferno, and again, huge mm. spoilers here, is actually her plan for Krakoa in this era was to cure everyone. Because it's mutants, the one yeah. thing she didn't get to do. It's the one thing she actually hasn't tried. Um, and she's kind of the self-loathing mutant we mm -hmm. kind of find by the end of Inferno. Um, I find that fascinating in relation to Beast's role and the mm. fact that he's like maybe the mutant right. in a position of power who would like kind of go along with that maybe right right that they're or or maybe he's in a totally different place now but it's like I was like oh that's I had completely forgotten how yeah yeah kind of self-loathing he could be at times as well um or or just but wanting it, out of the mutant you know but yeah but I think we're talking about the same thing this like there is a story that is sort of fated for the X-Men. The players in it may be slightly differently and this mm. is like the exact circumstances around which they will play those roles, right? The Judas of the group, the one who ultimately becomes the one who decides to wipe out all mutants, either by way of stealing the Phoenix and wiping everyone out or just, you know, curing everyone. It's sort of, as like comics readers, we can just recognize it as Marvel, like recycling ideas. But the magic of comics is when you find a way to make it work as yeah. like a meta narrative that way. And that's, I mean, that's one of the things that I, one of the many things that I enjoyed the most about, definitely at the start of, you know, House of Powers, um, House of X and Powers of 10, where it's like, 
Hickman is not secret about just an absolute affinity for Grant Morrison, but you know mm-hmm. the new X Men work right as as a template, and it's so nice because you, you've seen bits and pieces. I mean, Jason Aaron was was relatively indebted in Wolverine and the X Men as far mm-hmm. as like character usage and you know, there's a lot of Quentin Quire in those books and that sort of thing, um, but nobody had had really leaned in, you know, to the to the Morrison to the point where in House and Powers, I mean, huge foundations of the Krakoa era are E is for Extinction. Right, the genocide yeah. of Genosa, Genosha, and and kind of what that has meant—the decimation of mutant kind, um, and recovery from that. Right, and specifically what Cassandra Nova did. Uh, but then also all these details, right, that you're talking about there, with whether it's something as specific as chimeras, um, or if it's it's more conceptual, mm. right, and it's more about like we are because one of the Morrison's big things that we get to, and and here comes tomorrow, kind of it kind of muddies the waters in some ways, but it's also like. This run is all about, like, what is a mutant utopia? What does this mm. civilization look like um, when it gets to evolve? Because the whole premise is, like, they're going to outpace humanity. Like, that's happening right. throughout the Morrison run, and then it gets right. completely walked back with Decimation. Um, but it's, like, the Hickman run and Krakoa era, they really get to lean into, okay, like, like we're not outpacing them anymore, but with Resurrection, we could again. So now what do we build, right? What's our utopia? Right, and it's, like... The, the the dream of the like the utopia is to well I don't think it is to but it sort of it by necessity becomes we have to transcend Earth right like there's yeah. a degree to which after all of this we have come to the, the the decision that this is we love you we love you but we have to move out <laughs> yeah yeah right no which is, yeah which is I those questions I think are the things that I remain most interested in like what ideas do you have for not showing a perfect utopia because guess what <laughs> people have tried it's really hard but like what are your ideas for trying mm-hmm. what are your ideas for for attempts at that um and yeah maybe it means going to mars maybe it means like being in the stars but now you're in galactic civilizations and how do you you know what are the interpersonal dynamics and that stuff's fascinating i love that yeah um i'm sorry wait i would be remiss if i did not bring up uh wait wait i wrote its name down <laughs> okay Mermax, Mermax, the Mermax. The, the, telepath, the telepathic whale, which yeah. I, <laughs> I distinctly remember being like, why is there a telepathic whale? Yeah. Um, reading it as a child, like reading it uh, in my youth. It feels very goofy in the moment. It feels very goofy, and it is, but when you get to Araco and the concept of Araco mutants, right, mm. who are wilder and more powerful and, you know, generally speaking, Omega classes and like weirdos, like Mermax, right? Yeah. Um, you know, you, you, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm, I can't recall the name, but there's the one Omega level aquatic mutant whose blood is an ocean that they use to seed um, uh, Mars with water when they're terraforming it. It'll come to me later. Yeah. 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 But I like, I'm like, about. I, 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 there, there's a direct through line in my mind at the very least between Mermax and that character. And I yeah. love seeing like the, like, I, I love seeing the boldness of let's do more of that. Like, let's sort of, take the joke of haha there's a psychic whale x-man in the future as a part scottish of scottish psychic a, whale. A, excuse me of course a scottish psychic <laughs> whale um who is a part of uh, uh an interspecies coalition of x-men in yeah. this weird future where most of the x-men are dead and you know in the current x books it's like and here's why that is um mm-hmm. uh, because there there is a deep primordial precedent for 
what we know as the X gene to operate very differently in other circumstances. And these, you know, the mutants that you know, they are they are coming to understand this through these interactions with all of these Arako mutants. And yeah. it's the Arako stuff truly, I wasn't on board with it as I've I've grown into it over time. Mm. Um but reading reading um Here Comes Tomorrow weirdly makes all the Arako stuff like gel a lot more for me. And I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, I want I want Sure, give me mutant demon summoners because that's a thing. Sure, yeah, why yeah. not? <laughs> that's interesting. That's very interesting. I, the X-Men red stuff and Al Ewing's sort of um, continuing the Araka ideas that came out of Tennis Swords has been my favorite probably over the yeah. course of the past you know year plus. Um, and for, the, for many of the reasons you just said, which is like, okay, what are some ways of reimagining what mutantdom can be, right? Because you get some genuinely... You have to start getting really creative. You know, it can't just be... Um, well, this guy shoots lasers out of his fingers, right? Like it's you're really reimagining what mutant dumb is, what these characters can look like. I love that stuff, uh, and it's and, and again too, just like the way they function as a society is so inherently different because of the circumstances mm. of where they're from. Um, so you get some like just kind of new ways of thinking about how mutants should relate to each other and their world yeah. around. Yeah, and also just like the way that E for Extinction, or rather, Here Comes Tomorrow. Um presents us a different Cassandra Nova who has stepped into yeah. her heroism in a way that feels just so at odds with the Cassandra Nova we know. It's the same thing that's happening with Apocalypse right now, right? Mm. Like we're seeing yeah, Apocalypse, sure. you know, being a protective father figure, an actual father with children, right? Like this whole right, horse movie right. Apocalypse stuff has been like, actually I'm really guilty about my absentee dadism and it's kind of messed up and I've been working through it in some really destructive ways this whole time. My bad. Yeah. Um, well, I'm sure it's not that. I'm sure it's not that bad, eh? Uh, how long has it been? Uh, a few millennia. <laughs> oh. Can I come home? No. Yeah. Um, that's it's 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 just that is so impressive and such such a it's such a bold risk that easily could have just not worked out. Mm-hmm. You know, um, mm-hmm. because uh, I'm looking at the, the mutant. I was thinking of his name is Sabunar the Third. Um, or oh, something okay. or three. It's yeah, yeah. hard to it's hard to know. And so easily could the um, oh goodness, I'm trying to I, I I don't not ocelots. They're the little thing, the little fish with the thing. It's, you, it's, it's so there's there there's just so many ways in which that could have fallen apart because of the inherent ridiculousness of it. Oh totally. You know yeah. you know yeah. Um, look uh, what is it Lotus Logos like speaks speaks knives at people and it's like what are we doing because that, yeah, that, yeah. that, that you say that and that sounds like 90s X-Men comics that sounds like 90s Marvel like in a yeah, nutshell yeah. right like, right well even Iska just, where it's like her power she can't lose and it's like that sounds power, so cool it sounds <laughs> but then you so actually cool. have to do that you know but the thing I, I and I tell you and I tell you I think about her so much and I think about her as sort of like how to put there was a point in my life where I kind of had this issue where when characters would have powers that were too similar, I was like, well, why are you both on the team? Right. Yeah. That was something that really made Morrison's run tricky for me for a while. Cause like, you don't need, you don't need three telepaths on the team. It's a little excessive, you guys. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but something that's so interesting about Isa is that I read her as sort of like being a part of the same genetic bloodline as like, domino not literally but Mm. it's a manifestation of it is what luck looks like at an omega scale level and she Mm. conceptualizes it as always winning but like that's what luck is and that's so i love it i love it so much it's such a (laughs) yeah it is like a come up with something insane and then come up with a fascinating sort of explanation for it that you then weave into the character it's just like that's 
we've, we spent so much time talking about like the the inherent issues with the mutant as minority metaphor something that i feel you know the recent x comics have really done in an interesting way it's not so much exploring the mutants as metaphors but sort of really deconstructing what their powers are as like reflections of themselves mm-hmm. um beyond just like their personality traits but like mm-hmm. how they move through the world like that's something that's really interesting um yeah in the, in the in the codification of what an omega classes are it has led to a sort of more nuanced depiction of characters i feel particularly mm. with like characters like storm which you know everyone loves storm she's big she's powerful you know she's larger than life but this era in particular has really sort of resituated her as one of these like fulcrum characters not oh, yeah. just because she's powerful but because of just what her presence in the universe means mm-hmm. I, and that that's just like i feel like that is such a that's something I would have loved to have had in my formative X-Men years because that mm. just sort of feels like a kind of storytelling that is built to solidify a character in your mind and also really sort of solidify your understanding of their place in a world. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. And yeah, no, it's like Storm is absolutely... It's hard to think of a character, frankly, right now that we kind of celebrate and root for that has more gravity and kind of more influence mm-hmm. um, in the ongoing narrative. It's a super cool place to, to put that character um all right awesome this has been great uh i really appreciate appreciate you coming on to talk uh you know and again people can find the issues we read in the show notes uh charles where should people look for for your stuff um um so i am writing every day at theverge.com where i am a culture critic film and tv reviewer writer reporter um social media is uh it's getting harder and harder (laughs) it's it's a tricky place these days (laughs) um you know i the best way to get in contact with me is by carrier pigeon but uh (laughs) if you are still into twitter if you like a little bit of uh self-flagellation you can find Mm -hmm. me there at charles pulliam um i'm in the process of thinking about making a jump somewhere else i don't know where it's gonna be you know i would i would make a titanic joke but it's inappropriate right now apparently (laughs) 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 but yeah no uh for the time being twitter is a place you can find me and just about the internet okay okay perfect all right we'll include a link here to your profile um on the show notes but otherwise thanks so much for joining of course thank you so much Mm -hmm.